This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. I jumped at the chance to introduce Carmen Maria Machado, as I am not only a huge fan of her body and other parties, as I'm sure pretty much all of you here are, um, but this latest book resonated with me in a way that hasn't happened for a really long time. As a survivor of domestic violence myself, I can tell you that the only other people who can truly understand what you've been through are other survivors, and Machado's story is far too familiar for far too many of us. However, a whole new level of complexity is added here in that she writes about a queer relationship, which is something that has been all but absent in literature until now. In the Dreamhouse brilliantly flips the entire genre of nonfiction on its head with chapters that recount her volatile experiences with a past partner while infusing essays about the history, stereotypes, and current reality of abuse in queer relationships. Form and genre are suggestions rather than limitations for Machado, as she offers reader, readers everything from pop culture references like Star Trek and a choose-your-own-ending chapter to informative footnotes that are often as gripping as the text itself. There are also meditations on feminist and queer theory. While this book delves into the dark places of love and ultimately the end of love, there is a surprising hope at the end that is neither overly saccharine nor expected. As she says in her dedication, if you need this book, it is for you. And as it turns out, we all need this book. In the Dreamhouse has received starred reviews from Kirkus, Booklist, and Publishers Weekly, and is the number one indie next pick for November 2019. It was also named one of Publisher Weekly's best nonfiction books of the year. Basically, what I'm saying is you need to buy this book. <laughs> In conversation with Machado tonight is Jeannie Venasco, author of The Glass Eye, and most recently, Things We Didn't Talk About When I Was a Girl. Her writing has appeared in The Believer, The New York Times, Modern Love, and NewYorker.com, among many others. She lives in Baltimore and is an assistant professor of English at Towson University. So now, please help me welcome to Politics and Prose, Jeannie Venasco and Carmen Maria Machado. Hi, everyone. How are you? Oh my God, there are so many of you in here. Last time I was at Politics and Prose, I was extremely ill and was just gasping into the microphone. So I'm pleased to come before you less ill than before. Um, <clears throat> um, so I'm going to be reading from In the Dream House for about 15 minutes, and then we are going to chat, and then and then we will talk, take your questions. Um, I don't think there's much I need to tell you about um, the book, except that um, part of it is in second person. Um, each chapter is called Dream House as blank, and the blank is a, an organizing principle um, um, of, of genre or some other some other sort of element of, of literature or, or something. Um, and that will become evident. And I think that's I think that's it. I think that's all you have to know. Dream house as luck of the draw. Part of the problem was, as a weird fat girl, you felt lucky. She did what you'd wished a million others had done, looked past arbitrary markers of social currency and senior brain and ferocious talent and quick wit and pugnacious approach to assholes. 
When you first started writing about fatness a long time ago in your live journal, who here was on live journal? <laughs> I miss it every day. <laughs> a commenter said to you that you were pretty and smart and charming, but as long as you were fat, you never have your choice of lovers. You remember feeling outrage and then processing the reality, the practicality of what he'd said. You were so angry at the world. You wondered when she came along if this was what most people got to experience in their lives, a straight line from want to satisfaction, desire manifested and satisfied in reasonable succession. This had never been the case before. It had always been fraught. How many times had you said, if I just looked a little different, I'd be drowning in love. Now you get to drown without needing to change a single cell. Lucky you. Dreamhouse as Bluebeard. Bluebeard's greatest lie was that there was only one rule. The newest wife could do anything she wanted, anything, as long as she didn't do that single arbitrary thing, didn't stick that tiny inconsequential key into that tiny inconsequential lock. But we all know that was just the beginning, a test. She failed and lived to tell the tale as I have. But even if she'd passed, even if she'd listened, there would have been some other request, a little larger, a little stranger. And if she'd kept going, kept allowing herself to be trained like a corset fanatic, pinching her waist smaller and smaller, there'd have been a scene where Bluebeard danced around with the rotting corpses of his past wives clasped in his arms, and the newest wife would have sat there mutely, suppressing growing horror, swallowing the egg of vomit that bobbed behind her breastbone. And then later, another scene in which he did unspeakable things to the bodies, women, they'd once been women, and she just stared dead into the middle distance, seeking a mute purgatory where she could live forever. Some scholars believe that Bluebeard's Bluebeard is a symbol of his supernatural nature, easier to accept than being brought to heel by a simple man, but isn't that the joke? He can be simple, and he doesn't have to be a man. Because she hadn't blinked at the key and its conditions, hadn't paused when he told her her footfalls were too heavy for his liking, hadn't protested when he fucked her while she wept, hadn't declined when he suggested that she stop speaking, hadn't said a word when he left bruises on her arms, hadn't scolded him for speaking to her like she was a dog or a child, hadn't run screaming down the path from the castle into the nearest village pleading with someone to help, help, help. It made logical sense that she sat there and watched him spinning around the body of wife number four, its decaying head flopping backward on a hinge of flesh. This is how you are toughened, the newest wife reasoned. This is where the tenacity of love is practiced, its tensile strength, its durability. You are being tested and you are passing the test. Sweet girl, sweet self, look how good you are, look how loyal, look how loved. Dreamhouse as appetite. You make a mistake early on, though you don't know it at the time. You admit to her that you are constantly nursing low-grade crushes on many people in your life. Nothing acted on, just that you find many people attractive and do your best to surround yourself with smart and funny minds, and the result is a gooey, lovely space somewhere between Philia and Eros. You've been this way as long as you can remember. You've always found this quirk of your personality to be just that, a quirk, and she laughs and says she's charmed by it. Over the course of your relationship, she will accuse you of fucking or wanting to fuck or planning to fuck the following people. 
your roommate, your roommate's girlfriend, dozens of your friends, the clarion class you haven't met yet, a dozen of her friends, not a few of her colleagues at Indiana, her ex-girlfriend, her ex-boyfriend, your ex-boyfriends, several of your teachers, the director of your MFA program, several of your students, one of your doctors, and in perhaps the most demented moment of this exercise, her father. Also an untold litany of strangers, people on the subway and in coffee shops, waiters at restaurants, store clerks and grocery store cashiers, and librarians and ticket takers and janitors and museum goers and beach sleepers. The problem is that denial sounds like confession to her and so the burden of proof is forced upon you. To show that you have not been fucking those people, you become adept at doing searches on your phone, providing evidence you haven't been in contact with anyone. You stop talking about a promising student in one of your classes because she becomes fixated on the idea that you have a crush on a 19-year-old who has just learned how to balance exposition and scene. <laughs> one day, as she rubs her fingers over you and you close your eyes in pleasure, she grabs your face and twists it toward her. She gets so close you can smell something sour on her breath. Who are you thinking about, she says. It's phrased like a question, but it isn't. Your mouth moves, but nothing comes out, and she squeezes your jaw a little harder. Look at me when I fuck you, she says. You pretend to come. Dreamhouse is the River Lathe. Later that fall, she asks you to join her at the Harvard-Yale football game. It is a favorite tradition of hers, and she has flown there for the occasion, but has to be back in Indiana earlier than expected. If you drive there, you can bring me back, she says, and so you drive from Iowa to Connecticut to meet her. And so after a day of autumn temperatures and flask sips and people in furs and expensive bottles of champagne rolling around on the muddy ground like Budweiser cans, you sleep hard in an uncomfortable hotel bed. The next afternoon, you prepare to leave. She is a reckless driver. Nothing has changed since that trip to Savannah, and so you get behind the wheel of your car without asking. You pull away from New Haven, alternating between radio, conversation, and silence. You scoot down through Connecticut and New York. In Pennsylvania, the light drops away early, and rain glosses the pavement. Somewhere in the middle of this endless, hilly length of the state, this one you'd grown up in, she interrupts herself mid-sentence. Why won't you let me drive, she asks. Her voice is controlled, measured, like a dog whose tail has gone rigid. Nothing is happening, but something is wrong. I'm okay driving, you say. You're too tired, she says, too tired to drive. I'm not, you say, and you aren't. You're too tired and you're going to kill us, she says. You hate me, you want me to die. I don't hate you, you say. I don't want you to die. You hate me, she says, her voice going up half an octave with every syllable. You're gonna kill us and you don't even care, you selfish bitch. I, you selfish bitch. She begins to pound the dashboard. You selfish bitch, you selfish bitch, you selfish. You pull off at the next exit and park at a gas station. She throws open the passenger door before the car stops moving and stalks around the parking lot like a teenage boy who's trying to cool down before he punches a wall. You sit in the driver's seat watching her pace. The urge to cry is present, but far off, like you're high. When she starts walking back toward the car, her eyes fixed on your face, you hastily unbuckle your belt and run to the passenger seat. You don't want her to leave without you, and you're not sure she won't. Afterward, the drive is framed by wet, dark mountains. You remember going through Pennsylvania around Christmas the year before and seeing 18-wheelers overturned on the side of these same roads, their engine blocks blackened by extinguished fires. And cars, too, on the highway shoulder, casually burning. 
She goes 80, 90 miles per hour, and you have to look away from the climbing needle. The shadowy shapes of deer pass in front of you through curtains of rain. I am going to die, you think. You pray for a cop to pull you over, watching the side mirror for blue and red lights that never appear. You clutch the door when she accelerates, and when the car whips weightlessly over a hill. Stop that, she says, and goes even faster. Sleep, she commands, but you cannot sleep. Midnight comes. You enter Ohio, a state you've always found very boring to drive across, but now your adrenaline makes her hands tremble in your lap. You drive past dead animals by the dozens, raccoons blasted apart by speeding tires, deer whose muscular animal bodies are contorted like that of fallen dancers. The rain slows and then stops, and you enter Indiana. In the final stretch, when she exits the main highway and takes a two-lane country road south to Bloomington, the car begins to yawn to the left, kissing the double line, surpassing it, and then to the right where the door passes within inches of a metal barrier. When you look over, the back of her skull is touching the headrest, her eyes closed. You bark her name, and the car writes itself. Now you're, now you're too tired, you say. You're falling asleep. Please let me do this final stretch. We're almost there. I'm fine, she says. My body is my bitch. I can make it do whatever I want. Please pull over. She curls her lip, but doesn't say anything else, and doesn't stop. Every so often, the car swerves. You pass a religious billboard that asks if you know where you'd go after death. In full daylight, this sort of propaganda would make you roll your eyes, but now it tugs on an old childhood fear, and you whimper and then try too late to swallow the sound. When you first came to Bloomington, when you helped her find the dream house, it was impossibly bright. It was late spring, and the trees were electric, new-growth neon green. Now the leaves burn in red and orange, and the brown ones spiral away from the branches. The season is dying, and you are going to die too, you are certain, this night. The car pulls into the driveway around four in the morning and sits there in silence. You feel like you're going to throw up. The leaves drop onto the car's roof, and the wind snatches them away with a papery scrape. Finally, she reaches to unbuckle her seatbelt, but you are watching the lawn. Two dark shapes are crossing it, like dogs, but not. Coyotes. It would have been a lovely sight at any time, but in contrast to the night's terrors, it is so beautiful your face tingles. Look, you say softly, pointing. She starts, as if you've struck her. Then she sees what you see. You wait for her coo, for her sweetness. Fuck you, she says. She leans toward you and speaks directly into your ear. You say look without saying anything else. I think you're fucking out pointing out someone who's gonna fucking kill us. It's the middle of the night. What the fuck is wrong with you? She kicks open the car door. The coyotes bolt for the trees. You watch her stomp through the dream house. Her silhouette is thrown up against a series of illuminated windows, kitchen, bathroom, bedroom, and then all the lights go out. You get out of the car and sit against the side of the house, putting on your winter coat backward like a smock. The coyotes come back after a while, trotting casually across the lawn. Deer, too, and foxes, all paying you no mind, as if you are part, part of the scenery, as if you aren't there at all. You could go to bed, too. Or you could sit at the table in the kitchen and watch the scene from behind a window pane, but that you think would be like putting this night in a museum, removed, too soon forgotten. Sit with this, you think. Do not forget this is happening. Tomorrow you will push this away. But here, remember. Your butt goes numb in the grass. The lawn is a theater of wildlife. 
Your little car, stalwart as any stallion, sits silent and bright in the driveway, finally cooling down after her long drive. Birds titter early morning Morse code from the trees. A gaggle of drunk students crest the hill at the edge of the golf course and stand there looking at you, perhaps believing you to be a ghost, before shuffling down the street. And in the same way the wrist rotates faster when the door latch is about to release, the pre-dawn night speeds up just a little before the day comes. And though it would not be until the next summer solstice that you'd be free from her, though you would spend the season's precipitous drop into darkness alongside her, on this morning, light seeps into the sky and you are present with your body and your mind and you do not forget. In the morning... The woman who made you ill with fear brews a pot of coffee and jokes with you and kisses you and sweetly scratches your scalp like nothing has happened. And as though you'd slept, a new day begins again. Dreamhouse's Inventory. She makes you tell her what is wrong with you. This is a favorite activity, even better than her telling you what's wrong with you. Years later, it's a habit that's hard to break. You can be an incorrigible snob. You value intelligence and wit over other, more admirable qualities. You hate it when people say stupid things. You have an ego. You believe you are good at what you do. You're neurotic and anxious and self-centered. You get impatient when some people don't understand things as quickly as you do. You've done some dumb things because of horniness, embarrassing things. You've degraded yourself in front of more than one person. You secretly want to be a man, not because you doubt your gender identity, but because you want people to take you more seriously. You love squeezing zits. You'd rather have an orgasm than do most things. Occasionally, without warning, your ability to give a fuck drops to exactly zero, and you are useless to anyone who needs you. You. You've had sexual fancies about the majority of your friends. You wish someone would call you a genius. You've cheated at board games. You once went to an emergency doctor's appointment on Christmas Day because you thought you had herpes, but it was just a pimple. As a child, you were a tattletale, and you remain an unflinching rule follower. You're a prude about drugs. You're a hypochondriac. The only way you can focus during meditation is thinking about an orgy. You love a good fight. <laughs> one more. Dreamhouse as mystical pregnancy. Every television show you watched in your 20s included some kind of mystical pregnancy. Every interesting female character needs one, or so the showrunners seem to think. Vampires get pregnant with magical mortals. Comatose women give birth to gods and empathic Starfleet officers to mystic energy. Time-traveling companions discover they've been flesh avatars for months, and their actual body is far away and about to give birth. One woman wakes up on her wedding day to discover herself massively pregnant, courtesy of an alien. You are thinking of these symptoms and you begin to experience pregnancy symptoms in the dream house. You vomit into the toilet. You feel swollen and out of sorts. The two of you talked about a child for so long that you abandon all reason and wonder if you could be pregnant. You've had so much sex and the intensity is as real as anything. You consider saying to her, ha, huh, I'm sick like I'm pregnant. Isn't that weird? But you are terrified of the radical body modification that is pregnancy, the dangers of childbirth, the unforgiving nature of motherhood, and most importantly, what she'll accuse you of. What she'll do afterward. You drink ginger ale, you lie down for a long time, you forego food for an evening under the pretense of having snack, which you definitely did not do. You cannot be pregnant, you cannot be pregnant, you literally, absolutely could not be pregnant under any circumstances. <laughs> and there's a footnote here, which I'm about to read to you. 
Thompson Motif Index of Folk Literature, Type 511 1.3, Conception from Eating Mango, T511 1.5, Conception from Eating Lemon, T511 2.1, Conception from Eating Mandrake, T511 2.2, Conception from Eating Watercress, T511 3.1, Conception from Eating Peppercorn, T511 3.2, Conception from Eating Spinach, T511 4.1, Conception from Eating a Rose, T511 5.2, Conception from Swallowing a Worm in a Drink of Water, T511 5.3, Conception from Eating a Louse, T511 6.1, Conception from eating a woman's heart, T511 6.2. Conception from eating finger bones, T511 7.1. Conception after eating honey given by a lover, T511 8.6. Conception from swallowing a pearl, T512.4. Conception from drinking a saint's tears, T512.7. Conception from drinking dew, T513.1. Conception from through another's wish, T514. Conception after reciprocal desire for each other, T515.1. Impregnation through a lustful glance, T516. Conception through a dream, T517. Conception from Extraordinary Intercourse, T521, Conception from Sunlight, T521.1, Conception from Moonlight, T521.2, Conception from a Rainbow, T522, Conception from Falling Rain, T523, Conception from... Oh, bathing. T524, conception from the wind. T525, conception by a falling star. T525.2, impregnation by comet. T528, impregnation by thunder or lightning. T532.1.3, impregnation by leaf of lettuce. T532.1.4, conception by the smell of a cooked dragon's heart. T532.1.4.1, conception after smelling ground bone dust. T532.2, conception from stepping on an animal. T532.3, conception from fruit thrown against the breast. T532.5, conception from putting on another's girdle. T532.10, conception from a hiss of a cobra. T533, conception from spittle. T534, conception from blood. T535, conception from fire. T536, conception from feathers falling on a woman. T539.2, conception by a cry. You take a pregnancy test anyway, like an idiot. And of course it's negative because you haven't had a penis anywhere near your body in years. You're afraid she'll find the test and so you put it in a Ziploc bag and throw it out in someone's trash on the street after she's gone to class. Thank you. Oh, that's my microphone. This is my water. I'm going to even faster than that. That's my plan. The last one. Thank you. That was amazing. Oh, my gosh. And what an audience. Um, this is great. So I just want to start. Well, first of all, my undergrads and my grad students are reading this now. And I was so ready to hate them if they didn't like or didn't love it. Um, they would have failed. And uh, it's so hard when you assign something you love. And you're like, oh, I hope they love it as well. Um, but it's amazing, and they do all love it, so they have nothing to worry about. They're going to pass. <laughs> um, but I don't – to start, actually, I just want to start with how how are you? This is a chaotic time. It is. Uh, I'm okay. <laughs> okay. How has it been since – I'm wondering how it's been different, similar, since the first book two years ago? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, it's it's different in the sense that I now sort of know what to expect from like a tour, which is a thing that before I had absolutely zero concept of. Um, and it's so that's that's I mean, you know, so in many ways, it's like sort of the same, but also I'm like, oh, yes. And now I know I know what to expect. Um, it's been hard in that, you know, touring a book like this is much harder than touring a fiction collection, even though the fiction collection is not a cheery fiction collection. But there's something about, you know, touring a nonfiction book that I think just makes everything more intense and just difficult and raw or something. Do you feel, I mean, it's tough, right? Because when the book is in the world, you no longer have 
control, like you can't control how someone reads it. Have, has that been frustrating? Have you observed people reading it in a way that, um, you would disagree with any interpretations? You know, I believe very firmly in that when you write something and you publish it, like you're having half of a conversation and you don't have to be there for the other half of the conversation. Like other people are having their half of the conversation with your stuff. But like, you don't have to actually engage with that because you did your thing. Like I did the thing, that's my thing. And once the tour is over, I will not talk about this book ever again. It's my plan. And so, yeah, so like, yeah, people, I mean, people have had some readings of it. Um, I guess some of which I've been like, hmm, that's interesting. But like also it doesn't really, it doesn't really matter to me. Like it's kind of, it's honestly kind of irrelevant to me, so. Okay, and then the process of writing this book, how was that different, similar from, um, writing the book of fiction. It was horrible. <laughs> um, I'm not, I'm, I'm not kidding. Like, it was really bad. Uh, you know, you're writing fiction. I actually find very pleasurable, even fiction that's about difficult topics. Um, I think fiction is like play. I find it very like sort of casual and, or not casual, but it's, it's very like, I feel like I'm, I'm playing. I feel like I'm playing with dolls. Like I'm a child and I'm kind of like making things talk at each other. And like, it's really lovely. Um, and then writing a book like this is like an entirely different, I mean, I did everything wrong. I like went far away from my spouse. I worked, I went to residencies that had no social elements. So I wasn't like interacting with anybody on a daily basis. I was up, I would just wake up, write, eat, write, eat, write, write until I passed out and then like wake up the next morning. I mean, it was like, it was bad. It was really bad. Um, so yeah, it was just actually quite an unhealthy, quite an unhealthy situation that I don't recommend any, anyone reproduce. Um, yeah. So it was just, I mean, yeah, writing, it was just a very, you know, it just, it felt really different. It felt, it was painful. Um, I mean, it's writing nonfiction is really difficult because when you write any kind of nonfiction, you're trying to figure out like what you think about a thing, which I think is actually like one of the most difficult things in the entire world to so, like anyone who says that they like can easily figure out what they're thinking at any moment is absolutely lying or they're not very smart. Like, because like, it, like, you know, like you're always processing, like, like, you know, and I, and I feel like when I, I write like one essay a year, because like, I'm thinking I can't do like like trend pieces. People are like, do this trend piece. And I'm like, come back to me in three years and I will have like thoughts about this thing that's happening right this very moment. So yeah, so it's just, it's really different um, for me. And yeah, I don't know. It was just like a totally different headspace and a totally different process. And it's been really different in every way. So something I love, I mean, there's so much I love about this book, but um, how you, I mean, thinking about, so memoir, Virginia Woolf was a total memoir junkie. And she talked about this idea of the I now and the I then in memoir where the events are kind of the scaffolding for reflection and the I now really another way of thinking about that is the writer as narrator and then the I then the writer as character or series of characters and your past self you address as the you and the Carmen writing it reflecting as the I and I'm was that um how did that decision come about and then was that helpful in any way in in exploring difficult material yeah, it was. I mean, so basically when I sold the book, I sold this very, very skeletal draft to Grey Wolf like several years ago. And I had written it kind of by accident. Like I had, once I'd come up with the concept of the book, the whole thing kind of fell on me like a wet baby giraffe. Like it was just like all legs and slime and it like fell really far, you know? And, and then I had this like weird thing and I was like, yeah, I guess if you want to buy this, sure. And they did. And then my editor was like, so we need to talk about the fact that this entire thing you just sent me is in second person. And I was like, is it? Oh no, I didn't, I didn't even realize like when I was writing it, I was so it, it, like, I just slipped into second person kind of naturally while writing it. And my editor was like, it's not that you can't do that, but it should be purposeful. Like I want to make sure you're not doing it because like you're distancing the material from yourself by putting it in second person. 
you know, so let's, and I was like, cool. Okay. Come back to me. And this is like before my first book came out. So I was like, come back to me when that tour is over and then like, we'll figure it out. So then when I got back to the material, I actually began to like try to turn the sections into first. Cause like, there's no, I was like, there's no reason for, to be, for this to be in second. It's ridiculous. So I tried to change it. And like the text was really resisting me. Like I would read things out loud and they would sound wrong. And I was like, Oh, that's weird. Um, and so eventually I just, um, but then I would try to write like the essay parts or the more historical parts in second. And that didn't make any sense at all. Like it just was really weird. So then I was thinking about this novel that I really love, which is called We the Animals by Justin Torres, which if you so haven't, good. if any of you have not read it, you must. It's beautiful. And it's told in this like plural first voice, um, this, this we voice. And then later in the book, there's like, a act, there's a moment of trauma, which like splits like the perspective. And I was really like, when I read the book the first time, I remember being like completely just disarmed emotionally by the, the, the act of like trauma sort of going down to the marrow of the story and like splitting apart the very perspective of the story, which I thought was like really amazing and very effective and very devastating. And so I was like, Oh, what if I just do that? And I just like have this second person that's like, you know, the past me who's like on an internal hamster wheel of pain as she is. And then there's the eye that's like the, the Carmen who like went off and like did whatever, you know, and like is, is the person who's in front of you and then that ended up just working. It just ended up being like a really useful sort of tool to talk back at her. Well, not talk back at her because she can't talk. You know, I talk in the book about time travel and about the Novikov uh, self-consistency principle, which is this idea in time travel, this like theory that like if time travel were possible, that it was, even if you could do it, you wouldn't be able to like go back in time and like alter the past because the past by definition has already happened. And so like physically you'd be incapable of making it not happen, you know, which is like just a way of thinking about it. But it was like that where I was like, I have access to this like hindsight and I have access to this like past version of myself. But I, when I get there, I'm like pounding on the glass and she's just like, you know, washing dishes or whatever and like can't hear me. And that's just the, re and that's like the painful reality. <laughs> and so I feel like the second person and the first is like that manifested in prose, right? It's like that idea that like you, you can't access this past self. You can try, but you can't, you can like talk to her or at her, but she can't talk back. And then were there certain scenes, um, I, I hate when writers are, at, I'm not going to ask this I, as a writer, I hate being asked. So what didn't you include? Um, so, so, it's so not, much. Yeah, I know. No, so, but were there, um, scenes or memories or pieces of reflection that you included in this book that you considered not including for whatever reason? Yeah. I mean, I definitely, I mean, there also was stuff, I mean, to answer the question that you didn't ask, like there is stuff that I didn't put in. I mean, sort of one of the weird elements of domestic, of intimate partner violence is that it repeats itself a lot. And there, there was this problem that I had where like, I would repeat myself because she repeated herself, like the actions would repeat themselves. And there, were like, there was like stuff where I'd be like, this horrible thing is like echoing this horrible thing. And it's like, it's like one too many scenes of that particular horrible thing, which is like a very weird way to think about trauma. But like, and I was just like, I guess, I guess I'll just like either, you know, I'll put them together in like one chapter, like I'll mention them as like a list or I'll just like get rid of one of them. Cause you know, like I only have so many pages <laughs> that I can write in. So, so yeah. So there was this like sort of, yeah. And there was stuff in the, that ends up in the book where I thought about you know, because like memory is super weird, right? Like there was a scene in the book where I, the whole time the book was like existed, exist, like was being written, there was a scene that happened and in the scene, the action that I'm physically taking while the scene is happening is I'm moving across a room from like one place to another. 
And the whole time I was writing the book, that was the scene. And then at some point I was talking to my editor and I, in my brain, it inverted itself. And suddenly I was imagining myself walking the other direction. And then I was like second guessing myself. I was like, wait, was I walking? And it didn't, it didn't matter. Like it didn't affect like the chapter, but it did stress me out that I couldn't remember which direction I was walking. And so uh, and then that was, I almost took it out, but I didn't. Cause I was like, I think it's important for other reasons, but like, yeah, this was stuff like that where it was like, I would suddenly kind of come to, it, yeah, I would be trying to figure out like, what is it like? Yeah. I don't know. So yeah, there was just stuff that I, I did think about taking out that I ended up leaving in and there was stuff that I took out or didn't include. What was the, um, what was the editing process like for this? But I mean, it sounds like you have a great editor were asking the right questions yeah my editor Ethan is amazing um he's really funny because he's like as different from me as is humanly possible he's like this lovely like middle-aged straight white man and I I love him to pieces despite the, the all those facts um <laughs> but he he actually is like we really he really gets my brain like he gets kind of how I think which is which was true about the first book as well so his edits are very intuitive and really so he, you know he would sort of look at what I would do and he'd be like here's what I'm getting from like this thing that you've written I'm getting this vibe, this vibe. I think something is missing in here. Like he just sort of like, it was like he could just sort of feel like he was like going through it for lumps and he could like tell me where the lumps were, you know? It was like really amazing. It's a, it's a gift. It's like not an easy thing to do to be an editor like that. But um, yeah, and so it was really, I mean, mo and so mostly it was him like reading the drafts and sending them back to me with like this thought or that thought. There was, there was one thing that he did that was very intense, which was um, different from my first book, which is that, so if you've read the book, you know it's in these like tiny little chapters. And so for a long time, they weren't in any particular order. Like the, the actual events were in like chronological order roughly. And then there was like historical sections, but they were all like mashed together as I wrote them. So there were, it, it was in no discernible order. Um, and he was like, at some point he was like, we got to talk about the order of these chapters. And I was like, cool, great. Come back to me in like a week. And then I had a nervous breakdown for a week trying to put it in order. And then I called him and I said, Ethan, will you just put this in order for me, please? And he was like, yeah. I mean, he's like, I didn't want to offer cause I didn't want to step on your toes, but if you want me to do that, that's my job. And I was like, great, here you go. And then he had to download Scrivener, which is like, cause I was using Scrivener. And then he had to like, he like texted me somewhere. This is like a video game. Cause you're like moving little bits around constantly. Um, and yeah, and then he gave it back to me in order. I mean, it, I, I did adjust a couple tiny things, but he, and he was like, you can do whatever you want to this. And I got it back. I was like, Oh, this is correct. Thank you. <laughs> Amazing. <Yeah. laughs> Um, something I love about the book is uh, how there's this meta narrative where it's about the construction of the book and that and like trying to find the language for um, for abuse, for uh, abuse by partner. And so I'm wondering how you landed on the meta structure, if that came about naturally, if that was just part of the hindsight perspective, like all the references to the writing of the book. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was actually another thing that Ethan was sort of expressed some skepticism about early on where he was like, I don't know how these chapters in which you talk about writing this book, like, I don't know how they're landing, but again, like, he's not like, take him. He was just sort of like, I'm just, he's like, just like, just sort of put that out there for you. Like, let's, we'll talk about it, you know? And so I, I thought we're taking them out. was another thing I thought about cutting, but they ended up being because you know they were sort of happening over a course of many years, like sort of after this relationship was over. And like also as I was becoming a writer, like as I was sort of leaving this place of like graduate school and leaving, you know, and like entering to this new life. And like my relationship with the material was like by the material, I mean, my, it, this thing that happened was like shifting constantly. 
and I was like writing bits and pieces and little bits here and there and was like thinking about it a lot. And like, you know, I went to the Malay colony, which is in upstate New York. Um, and I was also reading like Edna Stevenson Malay's biography while I was there and like thinking about how beautiful the landscape was and then how like fucked up her life was and how like, like at some point I talk in the book about how I go out into the woods and there's actually like near the colony, there's like a, um, like near her old house, there's a mountain of bottles like in the woods and it's old morphine bottles and old gin bottles because her housekeeper would take her empties and just like throw them out there. Um, cause she was like an addict and she was like a ho- horrible to her spouse and like, was just like a really kind of difficult person and also was like very ill. And so like, I was just standing in the middle of the woods and like stepping on just like g- old morphine bottles and like glad, you know, like old gin bottles that like as far as the, eye could, like, you know, taller than I was. And it was just like, so, so yeah, so ultimately those pieces actually became really important and like think the way I was thinking about what does it mean to like be living through a thing and trying to write about it at the same time. So yeah, it ended up becoming really important. And, and ultimately I was like, I do want to leave those in actually. And Ethan was like, yeah, they're, yeah. And I think they had come along since he had last read them. And he was like, yeah, I think, I think they can stay. I think they should stay in. So yeah, I think they're wonderful. Um, so I love how you work with the fragment. Like it feels, I mean, it's very intentional. Um, one of my favorite sections is that one sends its dream house's epiphany and it's a perfect place. It's uh, most types of domestic abuse are completely legal. And it just, so many of the fragments are uh, work extremely well because of where they appear in the sequence. Uh, and I'm Wondering with something like that, uh, well, I guess first, if you can talk about the experience of the fragmentation, um, but also, are you have you been asked, like, what's the solution? Like, this is something that sometimes mm. happens with memoirs. You write about a subject, and then people are like, what do we do? What's the answer? Uh, and related to that fragment, I'm, I'm wondering if you're getting questions. Yeah, I guess so to answer your second question first, like, yeah, people, I've been asked that a couple times or something kind of akin to it. And I'm always just like, I don't know, like, here's some thoughts, but also like, what I'm not, you know, I'm not a social worker. I am not a mental health expert. I am not a, you know, I'm not what, who am I'm literally, I'm, I'm just, I'm just this person who wrote this book and that's like all I am. And like, I'm not an expert in anything except for like what I happened to me that I'm the expert in that subject. And that's like about it. So I feel like, yeah, like I, people ask me and I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not the person, I'm not the policymaker. I'm not the, I'm just the person who wrote the book. Um, and then to answer your first question about the fragments. Yeah, like I, I mean, as I was writing, I kept thinking about, I mean, I really like, I'm really, I've always really liked work that's sort of broken up into pieces. And I feel like has like an, a sort of a, a sort of symphonic experience of reading it. So I feel like the closest thing that I've written to this memoir was like, for if you read my first book, like especially Heinous, which is my weird Law and Order fanfic that they let me publish in an actual book. Um, and that, that book, that story, I remember when I wrote it, like I didn't really have a language for what I was doing when I wrote it, but I remember a teacher of mine who workshopped at Kevin Brockmeyer saying to me like, oh, this has a symphonic structure. And he like drew, and I, and then I've also thought about it as like a scatter plot graph or like, which is like the only math that I remember of like from anything, which is like, you know, the little graph and there's like lots of data points and there's like a best fit line that moves through it. Right. And so I feel like that structure where you're sort of putting down pieces that like connect in certain ways and not in others. And then sort of like little off sort of little like single bits that are doing kind of their own little thing. That's like not quite even related, but it is sort of related. And then eventually what you have is like an experience that you move through the book in this like best fit line or whatever. And so, yeah, so that just was a a a structure that interested me. It really felt correct for the book. I mean, that one section that you mentioned, like that, that one line, the most met has domestic abuse are completely legal. It was funny because I wrote that 
Cause I like had that, I was literally sitting there and being like, Oh, that's a thought I'm having. I should write that down. And then I was like, what other thoughts, like what else would you say about that? And then I was like, nothing and nothing else to say about that. And then I just like moved on to the next section, which was like, and then like, I kept going back to it being like, is it weird that it's just the one? No, it's fine. And I just like left it alone. And like, it just ended up in the book as like a single sentence chapter. Um, so yeah, I don't know, but it just, it felt correct for the book. It felt like the right move sort of structurally speaking. Yeah, I mean, I just, I love the book because it's so, there's so much texture to it in terms of the different forms it take where some sections are more essayistic, others more grounded in scene, other, you know, it's, buy it, everybody. Yes, <laughs> buy copies for all your friends. Um, okay, and I want to leave time for audience questions. So let's see. Um, first one, it was easy to find online what fiction inspires you. Kelly Link, Shirley Jackson, um, others. Has there been any nonfiction that's had an impact on you? Yes, yeah, so much. So for this book in particular, the books that were really sort of speaking to me. So there's um, there's one book, and I keep forgetting the author's name, but it's called. I think it's called. It's either liar or lying, a memoir. Oh, Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Lauren Slater. Thank you. Yes. yes, Lauren Slater. And that was really amazing. And that's a sort of experimental memoir about illness and reliability and includes really fun formal elements. Like a there's a scene in there, like towards the beginning of the book where she falls into a grave, like she's with, at a funeral and she falls into a grave and her mother is helping her out of the grave. And as she, like once she falls, the acknowledgments of the book begin, um, like the acknowledgments that would go at the end of the book begin in the middle of, and to the point where I was, I was reading an ebook version of it. I thought I had a bad ebook. Like I was like, Oh, I must've, then I like looked it up and I was like, Oh no, it's in print. That's just what it is. Um, so that was really useful for me. Um, there actually, I've not to your book, um, which I read like a very early version of, which I feel like is very much in competition with my, which is your most recent book felt very competition with mine, which I wasn't actually when I was writing the book, but was sort of afterwards, I felt like a book that was very much a companion to mine. Um, Another, there's another book, uh, uh, Proxies by Brian Blanchfield, which I really love, which is this essay collection, sort of experimental essay collection from, I think Nightboat put that book out. And it's, um, it's, it's essays that he wrote from memory on various topics. And then the final essay is a correction of all the previous essays. Kevin Brockmeyer's A Few Seconds of Radiant Film Strip, which is a memoir about uh, middle school, which is really amazing. It includes a gesture in the middle of the book that really um, floored me, which was um, time freezes and his younger self, and his older self comes and talks to his younger self, to his middle school self, which is really beautiful. Um, also, uh, Jen Chaplin's uh, My Autobiographies of Carson McCullers, which is coming out. It's not out yet, but I was really lucky to get to actually talk to Jen. We were at a residency together when I was uh, beginning work on the memoir. And it was actually really incredibly insightful and helpful to talk to her and then to get to read the book eventually. So yeah, so there is a lot of nonfiction, but it's 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 definitely a genre that I'm not as nearly well versed in because it's just not a genre I've been writing in nearly as long. But um, yeah, I've just become so interested in like nonfiction that really is like doing just weird shit. Uh, I'm like all over it. So if you have any suggestions for me, please. Um, okay, next question. Um, in your memoir, you mentioned many different anecdotes of queer domestic abuse. Is there any anecdote or story in particular that helped you process your relationship with the woman in the dream house? Oh, I don't know. I will say that the, the story that I found that affected me the most was Deborah Reed, um, which if you haven't read the book, 
she was a member of this group called the Framingham Eight, which were eight women who were in prison in Massachusetts for murdering their abusive spouses. And Deborah was the, and they were trying to get clemency from the state because um, it was sort of when we were, the idea of like um, a woman or any person like killing an abusive spouse was like, like it didn't really matter. Like no one, and they were like, what if, what if actually we didn't put women in jail for killing people who were about to kill them? Um, and so these but so anyway, in the group, there was this one woman, Deborah Reed, um, and I, and she did not get clemency, um, you know, and there was a lot of like stuff that was sort of going on while she was trying, you know, where her lawyers were sort of trying to play up her like femininity. Like they would go to the front of this panel and they'd be like, well, Deborah was like, she cooked, she cleaned, she took care of the kids. Like she was the woman because that's the only way you're going to actually be able to understand what, what was happening to her. If you think of this, of the, of the person that she killed her ex, her abusive ex-girlfriend as the man and her as the woman. Um, and yeah, and, and I just kept, and so it was really hard because like the, the reason I, I think I thought about her so much is because in all this documentation of this thing, and there was like a documentary made about them. And like, they found this like 2020 special or something like that, like a special on, on the TV, like all of these women, the rest of them were given like a lot of space and like Deborah, like they just didn't know what to do with her. They'd be like, and this is Deborah Reed, a lesbian. And they would just like move on. And I was like, but every time she'd come on the screen, I would like want to be like, I wanted to hear everything she had to say. And she just had these like really beautiful quotes about like what she wanted to do when she got out of prison. And like, I don't know, I really just, and, and when I read like, you know, stuff about like how she had met her, Jackie, the woman that she had killed and the way that Jackie, and like there was this detail about how like when she was on trial for killing Jackie, her brother brought her a dress to wear, like to, to court. And her first thought when she saw the dress was Jackie's going to kill me if she sees me in that dress. Like the woman she was on, she was on trial for killing. She was like, she's going to kill like that. And, and thinking about like how profound, how profoundly, like I think recognizing the way the tendrils of like trauma and the way that like that sort of thing reaches into you and like is not actually very easily excisable, you know, like parts of it might be and a lot of it isn't. And like, I don't know, like her story just really resonated. I just, I thought about, I think about her every day. Like, and I don't know what, I don't know what happened. Like I, as someone, I kind of lost a trail of her. Like I'm not an investigative journalist. So like, I hope, you know, I hope she's okay. And I hope, but like, I just, I don't know. I think about her all the time. So I think her story more than any was one that really just, I don't know. It just stuck with me. Um, next audience question. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the relationship between writing and fear? Oh, um, I am a deeply anxious, fearful human who writes only about things that freak her out. <laughs> Highly recommend it. <laughs> uh, it's funny because people have been asking me a lot of questions about like what I read as a child. Everyone wants to know what I read as a child. And it was, the answer was like very scary shit. Um, but I was like also like a fearful, neurotic, anxious wreck of a child who like never slept properly and was like constantly sobbing hysterically. But I only wanted to read things that scared me. Um, and my mother was so upset and would like ban books and would like take them away from me. Cause she was like, I, you have to sleep. You have to go to bed. You have to like function. You can't read Christopher Pike until three in the morning. Like you can't read Richard Preston's the hot zone because why the hell would you do that? You know? And she was constantly sort of trying to like interfere because I was making myself a complete wreck, but it was the only way that I knew, you know, and I think it's, I once did an interview where the interviewer was to ask me about, about things that changed my temperature, like my literal, sort of my, my internal, not my literal temperature, my internal temperature, like my emotional temperature. And I think that I always responded to work that like made me feel something. Which is also why I think I was like a super religious teenager. You know, like there's like, there's like a, something about like being like, I want to feel like I've tapped into something and that can be good or bad, but I want to feel like I've hit some, 
essential vein of myself where it's like, you know, you know, down here, like the magma of me is like horrified and like so wobbly and it's so awful, but like, this is where it's interesting, you know? And like recognizing that was the thing I wanted to lean into and not lean away from. Was it, is it healthy? Who knows? Probably not, <laughs> but it's the way that I work and it's the way I've always worked. And so, yeah, um, I, and I, I've given exercises to students before about like writing about like listing their fears and talking about, um, because I do really believe that like accessing fear is like a way to art. I mean, it's not the only way to art certainly, but it is a way that I think is like important. And I think it's why horror is like one of our most interesting genres, because that's, that's where your you know, good horror is like tapping into something about fear. Um, which I think is like really good. I know it's useful. Great. Um, actually riffing off of that briefly, what was your biggest fear in releasing this book or one of, it doesn't have to be the biggest, (laughs) (laughs) um, probably all the ones you can imagine. Plus, I mean, I, I, I think having like, this book is very embarrassing. Like it's embarrassing to tell people like, like, it's weird to like, because when you write fiction, it's like, you can always say like, this is fiction. You can always be like, this is, I just made this up. And like, and like, not to be, not to, not to like put anybody on blast and I'm not putting people on blast, but like, I can see some of my students in this audience, former students, uh, which is totally fine and lovely. But also like, it's weird to sit here and be like, hi, I'm your teacher. Also like this horrible thing happened to me. And like, I was a complete wreck and like, I did some really awful things and let small things happen to me. And that's very embarrassing, you know, and that's very stressful and knowing that like, you know, and there are like people in this audience who I've known for a very, very long time, like friends of mine from college. And, you know, I mean, I went to college in DC. So, um, and this is all to say that like, there's something about knowing that you're about to like purposefully go from city to city and see people and be like, here is the worst thing that ever happened to me, you know, and, and say that and be like, and then be like, here I go, you know, <laughs> like that's very, like, that's very strange. And it, and it's, it's, it's really scary. And I, I don't think that there's, I don't think there's like a solution to that problem. Meaning, besides like not touring the book, you know, I mean, which I thought I can seriously consider Like I was like, I don't even know, but then I thought about how much work my publisher I put into this book. And I was like, I really do owe them a tour. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, but I do think that there was something like about that, about that kind of vulnerability. And like, I'm not even saying that like you shouldn't be, I mean, I'm, this, I'm not saying this in any kind of advice-based way, simply my own reality, which is that like, you know, um, that like, it's really scary to be vulnerable and it's scary to sit in front of people and talk about, um, you know, your ex-girlfriend, like, like grabbing your face and telling you to look at her where you fuck you. Like, that's like a really fucked up thing to have to like say out loud. And so I don't know, like that's, I think that is the scariest thing or one of the, certainly one of the scariest things. And one of the things that I, I knew I'd have to do it and I knew it would be part of the process of this book, but I, I mean, yeah, I knew it would be there and it, and it is, you know, but it's a lot. Can you describe your writing practice? Like, what do you do to get yourself into a space where you feel ready to write? Do you have a preferred place, time of day, thing to listen to when writing? Yes. Okay. So I like to be 
in nature. So like this, I actually do love residencies. Like I love being um, like out sort of somewhere fun, like upstate New York or whatever. Um, when I'm not writing really sad books like this, but generally speaking, I like to be kind of out in a way. Um, I like, um, I usually wake, keep really Puritan hours. I like go to bed super early and get up really like, like 4am, 5am and I write and then I'm like done by noon, um, which I really enjoy. Um, I write on my computer. Um, I like to write for long stretches of time. So I, I don't really work well when I'm like, if I wake up at home and I'm like, I've got to go to the dentist and I've got to like go grocery shopping. And I've got to like do, go to therapy or whatever. Like I'm, I'm not, I don't write well on days like that. Cause I need, I need to be able to sit down and be like, I have the entire day to write. Um, and yeah, so I do not write every day. So for people, sometimes will be like, that's a thing people say to, to like writers will say, or people will ask writers about writers will just say back to people. But I actually don't think you have to write every day to be a writer. Like I certainly do not. I've, I've written, I mean, I write so little right now. Like I'm just not doing it. And it's like, that's just how it is. And like next year I plan on writing a lot more and that's great. So yeah. Um, computer. Oh, music, no music. No music. I hate music when I'm writing. I like to be completely silent. So even like no classical or anything like. Very occasionally if I'm writing something historical and there's music from the period that I can access, I will occasionally, as long as it's not in English, I will listen to that. Very, and occasionally like, yes, and like instrumental, like I'm going to, I'm going to be real. I, the, the two bands that like really shaped me when I was like a teenager were Godspeed You Black Emperor and Explosions in the Sky. I'm super cool, you guys. I'm so cool. Um, they're like the first concerts I ever saw. So um, occasionally that, cause that's like instrumental and there's no, there's no vocals. There's no, I, I can't mean a language that I understand or yeah, like there can't be any words or yeah. Let's see, I just have a few more minutes. Um, Oh yeah, this was one of my, and this was my students' favorite sections, the choose your own adventure section. So if you could give a context about that for anyone who doesn't know, but then the question is, um, can you talk about the writing process of the choose your own adventure portion and how much you had planned in your head if any of it was conceived as you were writing it? Yeah, so there's a section in the book um, that is a choose your own adventure. Um, I mean, adventure being used super, super loosely in this case, um, which is about a thing that would happen uh, in my relationship, which was that I would wake up and my ex would scream at me for sleeping, for like touching her while I slept or like moving when I slept. And it was this thing that would happen kind of almost every morning. And so there would be this like sort of weird ritual that involved like in the way that you like wake up and you like have coffee, but like you wake up and you're getting screamed, you get screamed at for 15 minutes and then are spending the whole morning kind of trying to backtrack and like make right the thing that you did while you weren't conscious. Um, And it would just be, so anyway, so I decided, and at some point during the writing the book, I had written in a notebook somewhere like gaslight the reader question mark and like circled it a whole bunch. And I was like, nuts. And I had, I was trying to figure out like ways to do it where I was like, oh, like I could refer to things that I didn't mention and then be mad at the reader for not knowing them. But then that was like, I was just trying to figure out what to do. And then I was thinking about the form of the choose your own adventure, which is like such a, weird and specific form and it involves a you right and also involves like false choices right because you're like oh I have a choice but like you don't have a choice like you have two three maybe three choices most of them will kill you right there's like one path like out of the book in which you survive um and it's yeah and you're being like led around by the nose right by this invisible force that's like not you know so it's actually like it's like it's like I you know it's it's kind of like an upsetting form when you think about it and so I was like oh that would actually be perfect to kind of create that sense of cycle so like in the chapter you can get you can get caught like you can get kind of turned around and you kind of just kind of circle through it without being able to get out um there's pages that are hidden that you can only access if you break the rules and so then it yeah but then it yells at you for breaking the rules um 
and yeah. And so, and so that, yeah. So some of that came, some of that. So I knew that I, when I started writing the chapter that I wanted to be about this particular thing. Um, and I, some of it I came up with while I was writing. Like, I mean, I knew that I wanted hidden pages, but like, I kind of wrote those on the fly. Like I sort of was like, cause they're not, they're not like things, they're like things that happen, but it's like not hurt. The book is yelling at you. Like the, the, the narrative voice of the book is yelling at you. So yeah. And there's like a moment where you can either like sleep and dream about different things. You can dream about the future or the past or the present or nothing. Um, and then there is a way out. There's one way out. So like, you know, um, so yeah, I mean, I had to map it out. I had to physically like write it. I had to like draw something so I could make sure that I was doing everything that I intended to, you know, which is kind of the trick with those stories is that you can't, you can't, you don't, you don't want to, you don't want someone to like make a series of valid choices and get like truly trapped in the way that they're like feeling angry at you. So, so there's, yeah, there's like things I had to consider, like things I had to kind of like map out for myself. Um, it was like fun to write in the sense that it was kind of like, you know, it was, um, it was like a challenge, you know, it was like a fun formal challenge. Uh, yeah. Well, it's like precisely eight. Oh. So I think we will stop here. Thank you so much. Thank you for your Thank book. You. Thank you. For information about upcoming politics and prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of